topic is one that just seems obvious that we both, uh, Frank and I, have participated in house churches and of course here at Forging Plowshares we have a fellowship that, uh, and we're never quite sure, you know, ha- uh, what to call this. By calling it house church, though there's some that do that, it's not that in any way we're passing judgment on other forms of church. In fact, uh, as a community, we allow for, we do not have uh, meetings on uh, on Sunday, uh, but we do go to a regular uh, formal church where I'm a preacher, but it's very, very small. But in, in many ways, the, the group meeting on Tuesday nights here, or other nights that we, we've met, uh, it is kind of the center of forging plowshares. And what you begin to feel very quickly is that uh, there are things that happen there. There's a kind of a level of fellowship that I didn't or have, have not normally experienced in just the way that church is done in what we might call the regular institutional church. And so I think in my daily conversation, I've come to just refer to this as, as kind of the, the center of things. And so today, Frank and I want to talk about house church and talk about some of the uh, things that may or may not happen there. And Frank is actually have long, has longer experience in this than I do. And Frank, what would be some reasons that you would suggest we adopt the house church model? Yeah, there's a there's a few reasons, and they're largely the ones that motivated me. And uh, the first one's a buzzword, local, which is uh, pretty popular right now in terms of uh, economy and food sourcing and uh, local industry and stuff like that. But with the church, it's important. And uh, historically, before cars, distance determined which congregation you'd attend. And in the early churches, and even in the Restoration Movement, both used location to identify the church, uh, rather than some name or some dedication to a saint or, or whatever. The location defined the congregation. Today, we pick and choose where we go. And it could be based on any number of things. It could be the service or worship practice preferences. Um, it could be your preference on doctrine. It could be that there's people in one place you don't like, or there's people in another that you do. Or it could be culture, and culture just kind of being a broad spectrum of things. It could be ethnicity, age, political positions, class, personality types, theological tradition. One of the things with house church is if you're attending with people who are just local to you, you're not going where it's comfortable. You're going you're going to meet the people who you live with, who you're nearby, and you're forced to work out relationships with those who live nearby. And I think that's much more beneficial to creating an authentic community because we're not, we don't just have this institution or these uh, committee-agreed beliefs and preferences for how what worship should look like, what assembly should be about, uh, and that kind of ends up defining who ends up coming. Uh, or even who we're targeting to to reach. Yeah, now you've used a word there, and it's a word that I found myself using, and that is the, the, the word community, that 
there there it, it is the case in uh, that it seems like that a community has and we've been intentional in calling it a community and and engaging in levels of activity that kind of uh, constitute us as a community that I think that that was there in the original church but and of course that's sort of what we've all lost in mobility uh, with in, in the modern period and uh, why do you think that is that that the house church may in fact not just be a duplication of a previous feeling of community but there is something about the what's taking place in the house church as over and against the normal institution that is promoting promoting uh, a kind of community well uh there's a certain level of well it there's probably several factors but one of them is just the number of people and when you get down to a number most house churches are going to be the size of say a small group uh that you'd find in a traditional church when you're that when you're reduced to that kind of number, you can't help but get to know people better. And um, that's one of the reasons they, they do small group, uh, is to facilitate that. Uh, but also, uh, with it being local, people that you live with nearby, well, just an example in my own context, when we were doing house church out there on Carpenter Street, right down the street from you, most of the people participating there were uh, fellow students. And this was back when I was a student at the school there. So we all bumped into each other throughout the day every day. We had a level of interaction that was much, much deeper than just once a week for 45 minutes to an hour. When you have the level of depth that we're going to talk about later in the teaching and in the discipleship process in the assembly, and then you encounter that person multiple times throughout the week or even multiple times a day throughout the week, it's much easier to bring the context of assembly into everyday life. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one factor at the very least. And I, I guess the, the thing that I felt is that where, and you know, the, the institutional church, the larger it gets, you know, I think we may have a kind of uh, mis misunderstanding here. We often think that the more of us that get together, the more that funds will be available. My, the little brush I've had with various megachurches is that, in fact, uh, it seems to be that the, the way these things grow exponentially in the way that they do is, in fact, that there is a turn inward in terms of the focus of the programs, the focus of the the funds in other words they're they're institutions that propagate themselves not necessarily by reaching out i'm not saying people don't do that but it it almost becomes a desperate need the larger that an institution becomes the more inward it grows yeah and, and actually i'm sure this is true in multiple different fields of work or study but uh, for me as a software engineer there's a saying that's pretty popular in the industry that none of us is dumb as all of us. There's so many innovations. You look at all these different tech startups, things like Uber, Twitter, even Facebook, uh, these, these companies that are right now, you know, multi-million or even multi-billion dollar corporations were not started by people with 
you know, vast experience and large amounts of startup funding and, you know, thousands of programmers, they were done with a couple of people who had a lot of passion, a lot, and a, some kind of brilliant idea. And, you know, they worked at it until they got something that was unique and different and revolutionary. And then they got the funding, then they expanded, then they became what they are today. And I'm sure that lots of, uh, you know, the, the internals were rewritten and, and done over and over and iterated again and again. But the point being, a larger organization, the more people get involved, the more difficult it is to react, to make changes, to explore new ideas. And, and also, in particular with church, when we're talking about things that are not purely idealistic like mathematics, we're talking about people and the needs of people and the circumstances of people, which change all the time. Uh, rapid iteration, rapid change and adaptation is absolutely essential for interacting with people. And just the very nature of institutions kind of conflict with the needs of humans. I've uh, just recently heard, and it's a, a thematic, that of a church that had a program for people with addiction needs. And, and we're doing a, a good work you know, using, utilizing the the church, and uh, I'm not sure to what degree, but that Matt wrote a, a letter asking, you know, why they just recently stopped. In other words, they stopped the program entirely and asked the whole group to go elsewhere. And of course, the reply, I, I, even before I saw the reply, I, I kind of knew what uh, the the reply would be. And that is, well, we want to focus on our own programs, the people in our church, and that we need to, to grow our own, you know, small groups, which for a, a huge church, I think this was a church of some 30,000 people, giving up a room a night was no, <laughs> in no way going to impact what they were doing. Vanji uh, uh, has describe the same thing with, in the case with special needs. That there really is, the, that the larger the church, the more difficult it is for them to accommodate people with special needs or even to focus on that as part of the ministry. And it just seems like that with a, you know, the smaller group, well, you're, you're just like any small group of people, They're, that uh, it's going to be as you're describing it, flexible and easier to accommodate uh, various people and, and, and activities. Yeah. I mean, you, you can only have so many acquaintances, you can only have so many friends, and you can only have so many close friends. And, and I think uh, the megachurch experience or large congregations, it's really kind of the same idea as social media, uh, whether you're talking Facebook or whatever, uh, that you have all these friends, but how well do you really know them? Uh, not only do you not have the opportunity to really have a deep relationship, it also, by nature, is usually some sort of a facade as far as how we present ourselves publicly in that way. And I think it's very much the same. And, and so smaller groups are really just kind of the reverse of that broad experience, really focusing on getting to know somebody well and deeply, you know, and 
actually recently read a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, and it's, it's mostly about focused work and removing distractions for the for the knowledge worker. He's a computer scientist, but one of the things he, he was giving an example of was uh, if you have a goal of developing deep relationships and you start evaluating how you can achieve that goal, what you'll find is that social media will actually be a barrier to that. Whereas if you wanted to have many shallow relationships and know a lot of people, that's where social media would be useful. I think the same thing is true with the megachurch structure. If your goal is to have deep relationships with Christians and to actually be directly involved with one another, then a megachurch or a large church is going to stand in the way of that. And maybe there's just something about the format of a Sunday morning that in a, you know, in our meeting here on Tuesday night, even when it's, you know, even though it's me doing Tuesday night and I'm doing Sunday morning, what you're doing in a, in a, in a, just the setting, it doesn't even, maybe it's not even just the numbers, but just in the setting of a uh, house church or small group uh, type setting, uh, that there is the freedom for interaction that I think keeps people more engaged or that they feel they can have a participation in and have a, a you know an investment in that there's actual benefit not just in content certainly an engagement in in the content but also then what you get I think through a true theological dialogue is that the depth of the the communication is the depth of the relationship that you know the people that we're going to form deep relationships with may not be the people that we talk football or running or you know whatever trivial sorts of things we all talk about but it's the people that we share a theological or share our faith with at a deep level and that seems to occur in in a house church setting yeah i th i think the tendency in in some kind of institutional setting is that the the schedule kind of dictates uh, or, or the the schedule becomes this this fallback uh, an excuse uh, or a just a habit that you know this is the prayer time this is the singing time this is the meditation time, this is the singing time again, this is the communion time, this is singing time again, now it's the sermon time, and then last song, that's it. Now we're out of that mode, and all focus is now resolved. And it also puts all the responsibility of participation on whoever's officiating the ceremony. And I think in house church, if you're careful, and I think you're, it's pretty easy to have a very pointless house church. But if you're careful, uh, that focus carries through the entire experience and through the conversations with others. Uh, it has, you have to be intentional about that, but it, that opportunity is there. And I, I've rarely, if ever, experienced that in an institutional church. And I've been going to church since, you know, as long as I can remember. I grew up in the church, and I just been to several congregations. I've never experienced very much as far as deep conversation after the service was over, and and that was even at several, several churches that we had would regularly do fellowship meals after the service, 
and, and have Bible study after that. And that time in between the service and the Bible study was usually about, I'd say, mm -hmm. 15, 30 minutes. And very rarely would you ever have a deep conversation. And I'm not just speaking to myself, anybody, because anybody you're, there. You, you, while we got that out of the way, now we can move on to, exactly. to other things. Or, or I don't know why it is right. uh, that way. But yeah, I've, I've experienced the same thing. Whereas if you cultivate the idea of, I've always, I've always thought that, that part of what in teaching is not uh, just the content, but I think that, that we need to be trained or at least modeled in how to have a, uh, a conversation about God, because you just say that, and for most people that's uncomfortable or odd, or, and yet uh, what, what's, or that people know how to argue uh, they're a particular doctrinal position, but I think in a right, the right sort of teaching mode or the right learning mode that you enter into a dialogue that it sparks things and ideas that no one person may have had, but it takes you places that you kind of you can. There is a depth of learning that takes place. Nobody necessarily brought any one thing to the table, but as people. Uh, begin to share, you can, you immediately feel a communicative depth that I would even tie to the word, you know, communion, the idea of, of a, a deep relationship. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had a couple other reasons, uh, if you want to get into those. That, that your other reason. The obvious, and we kind of addressed this a little bit, but the, there's less overhead. Uh, the money that we would collect and, and spend on maintenance and, you know, building upkeep could instead be spent on charity and mission, whether that's local or abroad. A lot of resources could be saved that way. Another is that the church income itself is no longer an issue. Capital growth is not the goal of the, of the, of the house church. Therefore, that leads to the people being served rather than the building or an institution. And then here's the other thing that I, I've always felt particularly awkward in my situation. I lived about 30 minutes away, well, 45 minutes away from three, uh, two different churches and then about 15 minutes away from, from one more uh, that were all part of the restoration movement. And it, it's common for people to drive that far, 30 minutes, 45 minutes to go to their institution of choice. So we had the choice as a family of going to, you know, any one of those three. Uh, you know, they're theologically okay, and <laughs> they're all about the same distance away. And what we started encountering is how congregation leaders would almost compete or fight over members, right? That they, they kind of, you know, it wasn't overt, but you could kind of see like, hey, you're going to join our church? You're going to join our church? You want to become a member? And uh, it, it was, it's really kind of crazy if you think about it that Churches are competing with one another as businesses mm -hmm. rather than cooperating, you know, because membership and growth is mm -hmm. is key and is important. And that just shouldn't shouldn't be an issue. It really shouldn't be. And that's why I think locality, you know, whether you stick with an institutional church or do house church or whatever, you should really go where it's local to you and and not pick and choose where to go because that just feeds this system of competition that really shouldn't be a part of the church. So then the growth in number is not the primary concern. 
so we can focus on the depth of discipleship. And that will lead to actually valuable growth as far as kingdom standards are concerned. Yeah, and I think, the, of course, the implication here is that as long as a preacher is paid by a church, he's going to be limited by, just constrained by the notion that he's employed and that his job is in some way at stake by what he does or does not say. And this, of course, comes up especially with pacifism or nationalism or any any number of things that I you know we know of people that are preaching in churches that certainly hold to a pacifist understanding or that are not nationalistic. But it's hard to to sway a group of people in an institutional church that are ingrained in, you know, nationalistic practices like the flag being at the front of the church. And here, you know, it's nearly, I, I don't know how you even go about changing those things. Whereas in a, there is something about, again, I don't know if it's just the smaller group or the setting of the house church. I think that you just, you don't feel that sort of constraint. First of all, there's probably no American flag up in your in your house unless you're unusually patriotic. But even then, whatever is there, you know, uh, or e- even whoever is represented, you don't feel the constraint. There's no institutional constraint falling, following nationalistic lines or that would uh, constrain you in a particular way about a particular teaching, I don't think. Yeah, I, I do think it has a bit to do with the building itself. And that's a building that only serves a purpose of assembly and whatever particular programs or projects you do. You have this fear of maintaining it. You have a fear of keeping it filled. You have the fear of you know losing the members that fill it. You have fear of losing the salary for yourself to work there, for the building itself to be maintained. You fear losing the position of authority that controls the crowds coming in or leaving. Uh, the the building itself has a certain amount of incentive to act a particular way. Whereas a home, even though it is also a building, it's where you live. And so your life and the lives of those that you're close with become the purpose. And and so the fear there is not about just losing these people that you have loose connections with. It's, it's a, a desire to grow close to those that you care about. So it just, it just sets a different set of goals and principles doesn't doesn't have the same fears. Now, as we're saying these positive things, I sure it's obvious that uh, in a house church it could also. Uh, I'm sure that it could go bad. I've never I've never experienced that or been in a setting, but I, I've certainly heard of, of cases where it's just an odd. There, there's really no one there qualified to execute scripture or to understand what's happening there. But on the other hand, if you have a group of people that are meeting, there is the tendency then for a like-mindedness that gives you a solid basis to, you know, to launch out on. I'm afraid that if it is the building that's drawn us together, even though it, we're all of us the same movement or the same group, nonetheless, in, within any institutional group like that, there can be such a variety of understandings of anything 
But whoever the preacher is or whoever's doing the teaching, they're constrained by the eclecticism of the group. So I think that a like-minded group of people coming together, that it does give you the basis for a depth of fellowship that otherwise might be lacking. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of things to be cautious about. Um, some things I've experienced directly, some things I have indirectly through family members who have been in different house churches than I have. But I think that the lack of teaching or the lack of qualification is definitely a huge issue, but also not... Not just the intellectual qualification, but qualification as far as character is an important one. One thing that is very key to avoid in a house church is that it kind of has a single, singular charismatic leader that uh, this one person kind of defines the behavior of the whole group. And, and when you have that kind of thing, what you end up with is an exacerbation of all of the problems with the institutional church. And there, at least, it's maybe a committee that's making these decisions. And here you have a singular person that controls the behavior and the thoughts and the direction of everyone. That's something very key to avoid. And that's why having a set of elders that are carefully selected, I think, is important for a house church. And also just kind of making it a point to have the space and the responsibility for participation throughout the service. But I mean, we can talk about that a little bit more in the actual practices. Another a couple of things, we've already kind of mentioned it when we started, but it's not the right way. And I think a lot of people tend to get that attitude, and that's really not helpful. Other people are not wrong for doing it differently. There's other models that could work well, maybe even better. I don't know. It's just something that kind of seems to work for what I've experienced and uh, in our particular culture as what I'll call, even though this isn't quite right, I'll call it the post-Christian <laughs> nation, but we could pick apart exactly what that meant. But there's other things that unique to the fact that it's a house. One is that you have to really be considerate of the housekeeper, uh, especially if that person happens to be your wife. <laughs> Don't overwork your partner with your openness and hospitality. It requires teamwork and shared values for the people who are hosting. That could be done in a lot of specific ways, uh, you know, in particular the fellowship meals, say. That could mean, you know, doing something like a potluck to reduce the workload or having different members take turns coming to help out with house chores or whatnot. Lots of specific ways that could happen. But just to, to not, don't overwork and enslave the person who is in charge of keeping the house where this is being hosted. Yeah, and that's, uh, that may sound minor, uh, but actually that's major in, in it's, some ways. It's way. a huge thing. It's a huge yeah. thing for a lot of reasons. One is, you know, the state of your marriage in, in most cases. <laughs> um, but even the attitudes and it, it can create judgment for one, one another, you know, like, oh, look, at, they're making this mess. They always leave like six dishes and you know, whatever. It, it, it's just a lot of stress that doesn't need to be there. Especially the whole purpose of this is is to is for the joy and fellowship, not for adding stress. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, it's kind of a that I think that if you can break through the barrier of you know of of doing this, of course, if you're doing it as we do it, we always do it here. That it it of course is a a thing that creates a, a lot of work. 
But if you can break through that, it also then becomes well worth it. That uh, just uh, because once you're kind of it, it, not just on the day that you're meeting, I think it also then creates a kind of feeling of freedom of coming in and out of one another's homes that maybe we, maybe we don't feel that uh, that freedom until we've spent some time and on a regular basis in one another's houses. Yeah, and it's also it's also just different from person to person because some people are very open with their homes. Other people are very careful to be super hospitable. You know, they're going to wait on the guests' hands and foot. They're going to want to clean the house very thoroughly before anyone comes. Other people don't care. Come in, hey, help yourself in the fridge, you know. No. And, and so that's a factor too. So, But also with a house, the logistics are really important. It, it's It's very easy to make it, this chaotic thing, it's very difficult to attend. Uh, it's very important to be regular, predictable, clear, and organized on when and where to meet. Sometimes it's always the same house. Sometimes it's other houses uh, or a couple different houses where you take turns. Mm. I found that it tends to work better if it's one house, uh, just because at least then you know where it is every time. Mm-hmm. And there's only one place where newcomers need to know where to go. But again, all those cautions about overwhelming are, are important there. And then things like travel, whether or not you're comfortable having someone come to your house when your absence and, and whatnot. Well, I, I was uh, thinking that uh, I know what we do here, and we kind of just do things in a particular way. But I'm, I'm wondering what sort of uh, practices uh, you all might have had in the various house churches you've been in. When I was in Moberly there, we did two things primarily, and both of them seemed to work out pretty well. Uh, me and then John Pearson were the two people who have been in this thing since the beginning. Yeah, even when it was just me, John, and, and his wife, Laura. <laughs> and I pity her at that time. Because <laughs> basically it was me and John talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, he's been with me since the beginning in that. And um, when we were living at separate houses, what we did was uh, we would take turns and whoever was hosting would do the meal prep, you know, and that way we just take turns of the whole thing, like kind of having a topic of what the conversation was going to be that night, the meal and all that. And so you kind of had a lot of flexibility that when it was in your house, you know, it could be a kind of unique experience for you to lead this assembly. And that worked out pretty well, but it also has its, you know, there's kind of a financial burden of, of that meal and not to mention all the work of doing it. But it can work. Mm-hmm. And then when John moved into the duplex that we were living in, then we, you know, we were both the same place, so it just kind of made sense. You know, we always go to this house, whether it was upstairs or downstairs. But we we also tended to do more of a potluck dinner. Mm-hmm. So everybody would kind of bring enough for for them, you know, their family or or whatever they could, or some people just wouldn't. You know, they just show up, and uh, that worked out pretty well too. Uh, it's a lot less burden on, on whoever's leading it to uh, or hosting it to produce all the food for everybody, both financially and, and work-wise. Uh, and then usually somebody or several people would volunteer and help with dishes and stuff like that. But I mean, those are just simple logistics that you can work out as a group. But it's, it is important to think about and be considerate of those issues. Because even though they are minor issues and they're easy to overcome and figure out, they're also very easy to ignore and cause major problems in the long run. 
I remember at one point in uh, the Life Together, Bonhoeffer, and I think it's Life Together, describes, you know, that they were, they, they were, you know, living together. And that after a meal one day, Bonhoeffer looked around and said, well, who's going to do the dishes? And nobody volunteered. And so he just picked up all the dishes and went in, locked himself in the kitchen and did the dishes. <laughs> I was actually going to mention that. I think that was in a biography, but I'm not sure. I don't remember. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which, of course, the, everybody got the point that, or most of the people got the point of, of you know, it, it, little things like that. Yeah, if I recall it correctly, he, he, he you know, when nobody answered, he, yeah, he got up and he locked the door behind him, you know, as it slowly sunk into them that they should get up and help him. It was too late. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they reacted a little bit more quickly the next time. So, yeah, little things that, that and you do suddenly, you know, your your own people's service attitudes come out. The people who are gifted and, and generous in that way, it becomes very clear. And you become to appreciate people, too, uh, for their, their willingness yeah. uh, to help out. Yeah. And so then one other thing to be cautious about is uh, a separation of concerns. And I think whether you do house church or you're at an institutional church, I, I, although I, I don't know if there's much hope for changing this at an institutional church, I think it's really important to separate assembly from evangelism. This is how it was in the early church. I think we briefly mentioned this, that it, you know, in, in the early church, you had to have already been accepted Baptism was a very thorough process of, you know, going through a catechism and, you know, that you were already choosing and inculcated in the teachings of the way of life as opposed to the way of death before you could come to assembly and participate in, in the whole thing there in, in particular communion. So it's really important that you're very careful who you allow into your assembly, not just because it's your home, but because this is a place where you're going to have things like confession. You're going to have in-depth conversations. And it's it can be dangerous for people who are not committed to the way of life to take part in that but for a couple different reasons. One, it's going to really hamper people's willingness to participate at that level of depth, to be that open and that authentic. But also it's going to make the guest pretty uncomfortable to experience that or lost in teaching that they can't understand. So it's just not going to work. And I think what we found is that as we've tried to make the assembly evangelistic, we get the same kind of sermon again and again and again that never goes anywhere. We have the call to the altar at the end of every sermon, you know, even if everybody there is a regular and we already know everybody's baptized and, and whatnot, you know, we still have that call to, you know, come forward if you want. At the end, um, but uh, I really think we need to treat, we need to be very diligent to preserve the assembly as a sacred focused event for people who are already fully committed to the way of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, an, that's an interesting point that you may have other meetings or you may do other things in which you invite people in. Now, I, we've never here felt the need to exclude anybody just but uh, i i could understand that there there may be have you actually asked people not to come well no 
but this is kind of one of those things that you have to invite people to. <laughs> so it's right, kind of easy right. to do that. <laughs> right, right, right. I have to say, I have to say, in practice, in in our past, right now, I'm I'm not really in doing a particular house church at the moment. Just kind of had people uh, had had some trouble finding enough people to be interested. Mm-hmm. Mostly because I don't know very many people right now. <laughs> but we kind of went back and forth in the in our practices in the past. And I know me and John have talked about this a bit. I think we kind of agree, but what we actually ended up doing was not as strict as that. We did on occasion have people come in who were interested in learning about Christianity and, and things like that, whether it was a, you know, somebody that was homeless or whatever. But that, that was usually in the context of they were a guest of, a, of one of the members and they were kind of with them 24 seven kind of thing, you know, right, right. Uh, not to say that I still think in that case that probably, you know, in an ideal situation that probably wouldn't be the way to go about it. But I, I think, you know, there's room for discussion on that. I'm not saying uh, that's uh, an absolute rule, but I do think we definitely need to make a shift away from it being evangel, you know, evangelism centered. And even I think, yeah, I think what we found here is that that people may be discipling other people and want to bring them, but would bring them with the idea that they're already having a discussion. And so that level of discussion doesn't need to occur in the uh, the house church fellowship, you know, in that meeting. But in other words, I think what draws people or should draw people in to Christianity is maybe something that they can't apprehend in the beginning. Uh, and that is that the depth of the fellowship and the depth of fellowship is is going to be fairly limited if you're always addressing people outside of the community, yeah, or or doing evangelism, right? Yeah. So, well, I guess with that, then maybe we could start kind of talking about some of the actual practices and how we're doing assembly. And, and I mentioned before, you know, in Acts two, the things that we see as being kind of key are the apostles teaching prayer and the breaking of bread being kind of the things that were what the assembly was about. But I think if you read some of the letters and, and some other portions of the new Testament, you can see that probably there was a few other things that were likely going on as well, such as confession, discipleship, and uh, we'll call it disciplinary action, but mm-hmm. we can get into that when we get to it. But first off and foremost, the teaching which I think is what we're really lacking, not just in, in the typical institutional sermon, but, but also in, even in many Bible studies. Because the teaching that we get isn't very deep, usually. And by deep, I mean profound, and that it really opens up the ability for the participant to understand the Bible. Not just know things by rote, not just memorize a doctrine, not come to an agreement, but to really understand how the whole thing fits together, to kind of have that interpretive key and the ability to, to read the Bible rightly and to understand it, to be able to talk about it with other people. And I think there's several reasons for that. Probably the most important one is that the level of engagement that's required in a sermon is none. And the level of engagement that's required in most Bible studies is very minimal because all you're going to have to do is maybe read the scripture. Nobody's going to prove that you did. 
-hmm. Nobody's going to prove that you read it more than once, if, if even at all. And then just answer a couple of vague questions to which there's usually no right answer. And then what will, the conversation that will happen is, well, how do you feel about this? Which really doesn't help. I think, you know, there's, at least with the catechism in the early church, and I think with what you hear in the letters when you have the one-sided conversation of Paul to the Corinthians or Paul to whoever or Peter or John or James, there's an accountability for the readers. There's an accountability to the people who are receiving this teaching that they better get it correctly. They better act on it. So the teaching needs to engage. And I think when I was taking classes with you, you had this very conversational type of class. You know, you weren't just reading from a manuscript that was one size fits all. You know, you were engaging us student by student and making sure that we all followed you. And you kind of forced us to prove it by asking us to break that down for me <laughs> or, or uh, whatever, you know, yeah. that we'd have to engage. We'd have to answer questions. There were right answers and there were wrong answers. And sometimes there would be new information that we brought out. Some students had different research perspective and, you know, we could all benefit from that. So not to say that there's, you know, you have all the answers, but uh, that there's a responsibility for quality participation that the, the student has to understand what they're hearing and under and reading. And I find that that's really lacking in, in most of the ways that we do Bible study. And then with that, that the teaching has to be transformative. It needs to produce a shift in thought that leads to action. And by action, I mean actual action, not just a call to action, mm -hmm. not just theological controversy, but you know, some controversy is necessary. Uh, but the difficult thing in this learning process is not necessarily the technical complexity of what's being taught. It's usually going to be the way it exposes human nature or ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be the, the difficult part of it, generally speaking. Yeah, I, I, uh, the, just the, the, we've just finished Galatians here, and I, I'm just amazed that that when you get into a book like Galatians or any book of the New Testament, that it is addressing you. Uh, I, I think that if somebody has the depth of understanding to, to, to recognize what's being done, that what is always taking place in the New Testament, it's addressing universal problems at their deepest level and, and getting at a you know, resolution of those problems. So there's sort of two ways you, you know, you can kind of skim through scripture and, and miss the level of it completely. Maybe just because people are uninformed in some way about human nature or, or you know, what the predicament, the human predicament is. So I, what we're describing as occurring, it's that when it does, and that's the, that's the thing about, I think, this entire conversation we're des describing something that's very precious, that once you, once you enter into this level of understanding of other people, of Scripture, to my mind, those things are synonymous. That is that, first of all, I think that many people are very lonely, and they're almost lonely for something they may not even themselves understand what it is that's missing. And when you experience this depth of fellowship, engagement, it's just something that you, you don't want to live without.
And I think that's the, the thing that can occur and more naturally does occur in a house church setting. That suddenly you, you realize this is what Christianity is about. Not the performance or the presentation or the production or, you know, the, the business that some, it consumes so much of the institution. That you, you want that depth of fellowship. And I think that's what you're, what you're describing. Yeah, and, and I think really, I mentioned discipleship as a separate thing, but really all I wanted to say about it is I think it really merges into the teaching. The normal teaching that we experience is a purely intellectual exercise, and the teaching that I think we should be having is the kind that is much more like discipleship, that the teaching shapes you as a person in your practices and in your daily life. I think part of that teaching is not just teaching information, but teaching how to teach yourself, teaching how to learn, teaching how to use Scripture in that way. Yeah, and the, the barrier you're talking about there, it's easy to play academic games with, with the New Testament. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that's the, the problem of an academy, of a, of a college. What can happen there, and almost, again, the, the academy or the institution shaping the teaching, that your entire approach is something, you know, it's an academic, it's an intellectual understanding. Well, you've already, in a sense, you, you, your entire approach then has missed the fact, you know, the book that you're looking at is all about the lived reality of the human condition. If you don't get that, if you don't get that it's that reality that's being addressed, and you imagine that it's some theological abstraction that's important. Again, I think that it either be, if you enjoy those sorts of intellectual games, you can mistake that for theological spiritual depth. If you don't enjoy those sorts of intellectual games, you may be confused and think, oh, I don't, I don't really enjoy deep thinking or deep study. Well, what that means is that... Uh, you're missing out on the kind of discipleship you're picturing. I think you're right. So kind of the next thing I think is uh, prayer. I think that's probably been one of the most irritating experiences for me, both in the institutional church and in the house church, because prayer is something that's really key in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it just seems so misunderstood and abused in, in our time, probably in many times, I suppose. But I think prayer needs to be deep in the sense of it's, it's meaningful and authentic what you're praying for, not that it's verbose. You know, Jesus said, don't be like the pagans going on and on, thinking that you're many words. <laughs> yeah, we'll have some kind of magical effect. The other is, you know, so you, you either have one of two extremes. You have a singular leader who prays for everybody else. Uh, after, you know, hearing a long list of things to pray for. Or, if it's an open prayer, it'll be dominated by one or two of the really talkative people, and then everybody else is just going to be quiet, either because they didn't have an opportunity or because they want to be over with already. And uh, I don't think either of those are the experiences that we should have. I think another thing is, when you're going to do some prayer, don't ruin it before you even start by taking requests and talking about the issues that you need to pray about before you pray, just start praying. Because if we talk about what we're going to pray about for 20 minutes or an hour, 
nobody's going to want to be doing the actual prayer when it finally comes time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're going to be crawling out of their chairs, you know, right. ready to leave. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of leads me to one particular method, which uh, I'm not saying this is the only or the best way. I'm just saying practically from experience, this one has worked pretty well for us. Uh, and that is popcorn prayer. I was introduced to that by Sam Stroop, who you know pretty well. Sam is, yes, quite a, quite a, a unique. <laughs> yeah, he, he actually was a, a regular at our house church for quite a while, too. Mm-hmm. So basically, it, it goes something like this. And you, you designate a starter and a finisher. Uh, and the starter is going to open the prayer, and the finisher is going to close the prayer. And so the starter opens the prayer, and then from that point on, Anyone and everyone can take turns praying in brief, less than one minute bursts of a single topic. Mm-hmm. And you can take as many turns as you want, but you have after that little burst, you need to let someone else take a turn. Mm-hmm. So everybody has an opportunity to take their turn in prayer, and nobody feels overwhelmed by one person. But you still have the freedom to pray about quite a few things, because you can take as many turns as you want. And the goal is that there's no periods of uncomfortable silence and there's no uncomfortably long-winded prayers. So the request is just the prayer. And once you finish that prayer, anybody else who wants to lift that up as well can just take their turn and and pray on it. You know, and they can kind of piggyback. Several people can pray about one thing and then somebody else could bring up a new topic and several people pray about that. So there's no long list of prayers to forget, right? So... That's going to have several different effects. One is that you're not going to have one person dominating it. Those who don't like to pray for long periods of time or feel less talented at prayer, whatever that might mean, uh, won't feel intimidated to join in. Nobody's going to feel left out because their prayer got forgotten on the list. And nobody's going to feel odd for not praying about everything because we're not taking long turns where everybody prays about everything. It's just short turns, people praying as they feel like they should. So basically, as soon as there's a gap of time, usually, I mean, sure, we're talking just 10, 20 to 30 seconds of open air, maybe even 10 seconds. The closer's job is to pray that closing prayer. The, the purpose of that is that you don't have that long, awkward silence of indeterminacy where you're not sure if the prayer is over or whatever, and you kind of wait for two minutes and then somebody else prays, and then there's more uncomfortable silence. So the idea is if we want to keep this prayer going, you know, it's nonstop. Everybody just keeps praying, short bursts, short bursts. And as soon as there's any gap, there's a a person that we already know. Once he says, amen, we're done. (laughs) And that that really helps a lot. And what I've found is that it can change the the whole attitude of the group about prayer. What it would be before is that, you know, we, we, we do these lists of requests for 10, 20 minutes. And then, boy, prayer just seems so painful. And it, it usually ends in about less than 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I can honestly say what, we, what we've experienced when we used this method instead is that we found ourselves regularly praying over 20 minutes. And it, I think there was one time where it was actually over an hour and nobody knew it was that long. <laughs> it, 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 because it becomes a real conversation. You know, you're actually... Mm-hmm. It, together, you're talking with God, mm-hmm. you know, and and... It really just feels a lot more authentic. There's just something about it where it's really engaging, and it doesn't doesn't put people off. Mm-hmm. And you know, it could be short or long, and it really just de- it's determined by what the group is in- experiencing, what what the needs are at the moment. 
That's good. That's good. Yeah. And and I think that the the prayer is uh, you know that is a time that people can obviously bring you know things that are they're struggling with or things that are hurting them or uh, that it, it does give everybody an opportunity to, to share at that level. Yeah. So the breaking of bread, we've already talked about this quite a bit in two podcasts so far, uh, Rediscovering Communion. And so I probably not to spend too much time on that here, but to, you know, listeners can go refer to those. And especially the first one has a number of resources listed on the page uh, on the website where you can find more information to read more on the topic. But as far as the practice itself is concerned, uh, you know, it should be a real meal. We've already kind of talked about the logistics uh, as, as how you could work that out. But th- the key thing is that this meal should be a time where conversation is dedicated to the living out of the kingdom of God. You should not be talking about sports or TV or movies or fiction or whatever. This is, this is a time where the whole conversation, everything that happens there is related to the kingdom of God. And since it's a Thanksgiving offering here, this is the perfect time that uh, if your assembly wants to do things like singing or poetry or liturgy or scripture readings, this is the time to do it. Instead of talking about pointless things while we're eating, this commemorative meal is a time to have volunteers sing a song or read a poem or read scriptures. Mm-hmm. Anyone who has praise to lift up you know, in thankfulness to God, this is a great time to do it. Gratefulness is, is always welcome. You know, like it said in the Didache, let the prophets praise as much as they want. But that gratefulness, it, one thing that could easily become a problem with certain, certain personality types is that it, it turns into kind of bragging in the name of Jesus, where you're being thankful for things like vacations or children's success in school or sports or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, let, let's make sure that we're careful about what we're, what we're using the time for. So you you actually had people do readings or uh, scripture readings or other type things during the meal. We hadn't, you know, you have to kind of keep in mind our context as as the the group that we had in our house church. We did it on uh, Sunday evenings, and almost every member of that house church had already been in an institutional church in the morning, mm-hmm. whether they were preaching or doing something. They had already had their fill of uh, music. <laughs> I think, generally speaking, uh, but but what I'm saying is, I know you know some for some assemblies, this is going to be important for them, and they want to participate in that way. I mean, my context and and those who were in my group didn't feel that way, but this is, I think, the ideal time to do it. Rather than having a time where everybody has to sit there and sing, which I think is is really hard to do in house church because first of all, you've less people, so the statistically, you're not as likely to find singers. Mm-hmm. You can hear each other more, which makes you even more uh, uncomfortable. And there's no like worship group leading and covering over you, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having having this a specific time for singing is very awkward. But if it's instead a a, a time where uh, everybody is eating, those who want to participate in that can just you know volunteer that. And I think in the letters you kind of have the hint where Paul's saying you know doesn't. Each one of you bring a prayer or a song or this. You know, I, I don't think that the requirement was that, you know, everybody sat down and sang this hymn. I think it was more like somebody had something relevant. You know, maybe they wrote a song. Maybe they encountered, they learned a song this week that was important to them or something meaningful. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of an individual shares it rather than everybody's required to participate in it. I want to value the people who do music and who sing and who do poetry and all that, but don't require everybody else to participate in it. If it's important to you, go ahead and express it, and, and here's a good time to do it. That's good, yeah. Uh, frankly, I really appreciate the, the conversation, and uh, we're going to pursue this. You've given you've uh, your own practical experience in doing house church. And putting that together, I think, is very helpful. The impetus behind this is, in fact, aimed at fellowship of the saints that just, in my experience, is very much lacking. I think this is what we need in the church today. So Frank and I are going to continue this conversation in another podcast. We're going to hit some other elements of house church, confession, discipleship, and other elements that that need to go into this. But Frank, thanks for your time, and we'll look forward to the part two of the house.